Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. I'm Jeremy Cliff in Berlin. And I'm Emily Tampkin in Washington, D.C. It's Friday, the 10th of July. Welcome to World Review from the New Statesman. Thank you for joining us. Emily, how are things in DC and how is life as a published author? Oh, the, the air sounds different. The grass smells... No, it's, it's been lovely and life in DC is fine, all things considered. How's Berlin? Berlin is good. We're going to be coming on to this shortly, but the, the big discussion about reassessing figures from history has come to my neighbourhood recently. There, there's been a big debate about changing the name of a local underground station because it's called Morenstrasse, which is a sort of a, a, an old, involves an old-fashioned term for, for, for a black person. And there's talk about changing it to the name of a Russian composer who since turned out to be anti-Semitic. So the Berlin Transit Authority is getting in itself into quite a tangle about what exactly to rename this, this metro station to. We can come on to that later. And before we do, what has been the moment this week that you think will go down in history? So although I said that everything was all right in D.C., all things considered, obviously extremely controversial, which is a kind way of putting it, policy has continued to come out of Washington. And this week, my moment of the week is that international students were told by ICE, that is the Immigration and Customs Enforcement, that if they're pursuing degrees in the United States at universities that switch to online only courses because of the pandemic, they will have to leave the country or risk deportation. What's your moment? Well, mine is, I was really struck by a statement by the uh, Chinese ambassador to the UK earlier this week, I think it was on Tuesday, Liu Xiaoming, who said, in fact, he tweeted, if you make China a hostile country, you will have to bear the consequences. This was addressed at the British establishment, which I was just flabbergasted at. And it's an illustration of the new aggressiveness of tone that certain Chinese diplomats have taken, and also how self-sabotaging that is. I mean, I've written in our, our World Review newsletter, to which I hope all listeners will subscribe, about the way that China damages itself with this unnecessarily belligerent rhetoric. And I think it's just a perfect example of that. And as it happens, we have an excellent essay in this week's New Statesman by China expert Isabel Hilton on the kind of the death of the kind of love affair between the Tory party and Beijing. And I think that this statement just really summed up how drastically relations have changed over the last sort of months and years. So with that, Emily, would you like to introduce our guest this week? I would love to introduce our guest this week. We are so pleased that Brandon Tensley is joining us on the pod this week. Brandon Tensley is a national political writer at CNN, where he covers the intersection of culture, identity, and politics. He is also working on a book on The Voice, Whitney Houston. Brandon, thank you so much for being with us this week. Hi, thank you for having me on. You know, part of the reason that we wanted to bring you onto this podcast is that there has been so much discussion 
rightly, of racism in the United States specifically. And we wanted to broaden that out into a discussion of how racism is understood and reacted to and materializes throughout the world. And you, you know, now you live in Washington, D.C., but you did a Fulbright in Germany. You studied in graduate school at Oxford. You did a loose fellowship in Thailand. To the listener, Brandon and I are also friends. I haven't like, I mean, I could have Googled them before (laughs) this. That would have actually been very professional of me. And you've studied race and racism and experienced it in various ways in all these places. So I I sort of wanted to, before we really get into it, just get your thoughts on how in these various places, you on either a personal or as a researcher and writer on an intellectual level have understood racism. Mm -hmm. I'll start with Germany, because that was the country where I, when I first went abroad, Germany was the first place that I that I went to. And so I think to me, what was most striking about conversations on race in Germany was that it's actually not talked about, at least not in a in a sort of specific or meaningful or concrete way. And so I remember back in 2009, which was when I was studying abroad and I was staying with the host family in Berlin. And so 2009, you know, Obama had just recently entered the White House and my host mom was asking me about, you know, what did this mean for America? How did I feel about it? And, you know, my German wasn't that great at the time. And so I was sort of fumbling for words and I was trying to say race. And I remember she like stopped me at the dinner table and was like, we don't use that word. (laughs) Oh. (laughs) And I remember just thinking like, oh, wow, like all of a sudden I don't have a vocabulary to (laughs) talk about these issues that are that are playing out back home or the way that people are sort of starting to reframe or reconceptualize the issues that are playing out back home. What did she want you to use instead? She was like, you know, we will talk in terms of like nationality, yeah. things like that. But we, you know, she was, she specifically was like races to talk about, you know, different species. We used that to talk about animals. And I remember just thinking like, huh, <laughs> very intriguing, you know, and I think, you know, that was more than 10 years ago at this point. And so I've had a lot of time to just sort of, you know, sort of sit in that situation. It's obviously been pretty informative in some ways, but it it made me think about how do you address a problem like racial discrimination when you, there's a sort of broader skittishness when it comes to talking about people who face discrimination based on race. And so I think, you know, when it comes to Germany, that's something that I feel like that's been sort of a a broader trend or a broader sort of national impulse. And it's something that I even noticed this past week. I was reading a Deutsche Welle piece and it was talking about two members of the Green Party who were talking about following the police killing of George Floyd. And they wanted the clause in the German constitution that mentions discrimination based on race to be changed. And so in, in their words, they said, there's no such thing as race. There are only people. And I, you know, I'd love to hear both of your opinions on this. But you know, to me, that sort of spoke to this larger belief that you know, if, if you don't want to create or abet racism, then you have to avoid using racial categories, which to me sort of misses the point. It assumes that acknowledging race is the problem. You know, the fact that my skin is darker isn't itself the problem, but it's, you know, it's the the meaning that we give to these differences and the ways that these meanings then sort of embed themselves in the culture and our institutions and things like that. But um, yeah. Jeremy, since you're living, since you live in Berlin, if you wanted to give your your thoughts. Yeah, I hadn't actually seen that news story, but it absolutely resonates with, with sort of my sense of how this, this subject is discussed in Germany. Because on the one hand, Germany is really exemplary in how it applies the lessons of history and its sensitivity towards discrimination and so forth. You know, there's, this, this is a kind of country, you know, that has 
done a lot to try and learn the lessons of the mid 20th century where you know you have on the streets uh, you know outside where i'm sitting now in berlin every few hundred yards or meters you find a little brass stolperstein or a little sort of a little brass stone set into the pavement which will tell you the name of a, a jewish person who lived there and was uh, murdered in the holocaust so you know there's, there's a huge holocaust memorial in the center of the city and a lot of sort of public debate and languages about anti-discrimination reconciliation commemoration but then when it comes to sort of everyday life you know and and, and things things like you know synagogues get uh, proper police protection you know it's all done very properly but when it comes to everyday life and minorities who've sort of particularly come to germany in the last few decades there's a kind of odd blindness to discrimination towards them or the fact that these are kind of battles still playing out in german cities increasingly so in german cities and towns and villages as the country becomes more diverse and I think this mentality is summed up by, I mean, famously, the immigrants who came here to work in the uh, German manufacturing industries or in the West German manufacturing industries in the 1960s and 70s were, were known as Gastarbeiter, so guest workers. Mm-hmm. And the idea was that they were never going to stay. They never needed to integrate. They never really needed to be part of German society. And getting past that mentality to an idea of a kind of multiracial society where you do talk about the real discriminations and injustices that happen in everyday life is, I think, it's certainly a process that is still playing out. And I think in that respect, actually, Germany's, certainly in terms of the openness of its debate, is actually some way behind Britain, France and the US, which maybe have had to sort of, I don't know, grapple with these issues for longer. But it it does strike you that that Germans struggle to take this as a sort of really concrete everyday issue. I mean, I have non sort of non white friends here in Berlin who will who who regularly say that they get asked, "Where do you come from?" and then they'll say, uh-huh. "Oh, I come from Berlin." I've got a British friend here uh, who says, "Oh, they ask me where do I come from," and I say, "Oh, Berlin." And then they say, "Where do you really come from?" and I say, "Oh, Britain." <laughs> and they say, "But no, but where do you really come from?" Because she's <laughs> yeah. non white, and it's sort right. of. I don't think there's an intent to offend, but there is certainly a kind of blindness. So yeah, I absolutely recognize the the, the example you give, Brennan. Yeah, I lived in in Bremen or Bremen for a year, and it was just so funny because people. Not, funny is not the right word, but people would sort of talk to me about racism in America, which is obviously a huge problem, but weren't willing to. If I tried to say, well, let's let's now talk about the situation with people of Turkish descent here in Bremen, the population that you know one of the gastarbeiter original gastarbeiter populations mm. um, in West Germany, it was like, well, there's no. Problem. And this is in, in many ways a very segregated community that was is mistreated in data. Like I don't mean to offend any <laughs> Bremen-based listeners who are listening to this, but I think there's a lot of work to be done in terms of how they're treated and integrated and the positions that they're able to hold in that particular society in day-to-day life. And it was just like you couldn't break through. But but we're talking about, you know, two different things now. We're talking about people of a different race, and we're also talking about people who come from somewhere else. And I actually think that that people are still more comfortable speaking about the latter than they are the former. And I'm thinking specifically, Brandon, of an incident you had in graduate school where you wanted to write about, correct me if my memory is failing, but you wanted to write about racism in Germany and were told instead that, well, you should write about xenophobia because you can't prove race. Care to comment? (laughs) That's 100% true. Yeah. Uh, So yeah, I wanted to focus on basically how being socialized in different sort of regimes to use sort of political science speak, you know, being socialized in East Germany versus West Germany, how did those different experiences influence the ways that their respective populations viewed race? I mean, so I specifically wanted to get at attitudes, racial attitudes, racism, how it plays out. And yeah, I was told that to to change the the framing to xenophobia, 
because, yeah, like you said, Emily, uh, because racism, uh, you can't prove racism, which I think at the time, you know, I was just a young grad student and sort of went along with it. And I also think that this professor, there could have been a sense of trying to protect me institutionally in terms of, you know, I'm basically would have had to try to convince a bunch of Brits, the people reading this thesis, that racism was an issue that had contemporary sort of influence. This was in Oxford. And so in hindsight, though, you know, what I, I think that incident is so telling, because I often think about how you know, I've, I've since come to really dislike using language like xenophobia in some ways, just because it doesn't quite cut it. Mm-hmm. You're using this word that's somewhat open-ended and vague to capture or to clarify something that's particular and concrete in this particular instance, right? With what you want to talk about is racism. Um, but race is such a sharp, cutting word in a way that, you know, I think honestly, uh, xenophobia isn't. And so I think when you use a word like xenophobia, you're able to sort of take refuge in the sort of the vagueness of it in a way that doesn't allow you to grapple with the actual, the social realities that people are facing, not purely because of where they come from, but also, you know, like Jeremy, like you were saying, like you have friends who are from Berlin. So it's not a matter of xenophobia in these instances. It's, it's a matter of racial attitudes towards particular groups. I wonder here in the United States, because, you know, there is discrimination against immigrants and children of immigrants and grandchildren of immigrants and people of color more broadly face discrimination at work and and in their daily lives. Black Americans have a very specific experience in this country. And I'm wondering how you as a person who writes about race, culture and politics grapple with that and thinking about our, our own country, right? How do you how do you address the broader scope of discrimination without, as you say, taking the sting out of it and also taking the specificity out of it? It can be challenging, I think, mostly because I think that for me, whenever I'm writing about things, um, and I think there's been sort of a, a broader sort of national shift in this direction, but whenever I'm personally writing about these things, I think that it's so important to be as clear and sharp and specific as possible, you know, to give examples to illuminate that, like, oh, actually, like, race and racism are things that are true, that have meaning, that are, you know, quote, unquote, provable. And so I think the more that people use the words that they actually mean, I think that the more likely they are to not normalize the words in a way that, in a sense, that they lose their their punch or they lose their impact, but in a way that sort of makes it clear to people that these are still issues that do have meaning that are playing out. And so, you know, if I'm talking about racism, I try to say that I am talking about racism or something is racist. I say that this incident that I am talking about is racist. And, you know, like, I think sometimes that will offend people. I think of all the topics that I write about, you know, gender, sexuality, race, race is always the one that will sort of invite the most backlash, for lack of a better word. And I think That's because people just, it it makes people really uncomfortable. But I think the fact that people are uncomfortable shows that there is a necessity to continue to have these conversations. Because I think when people are uncomfortable, they will find ways to sort of skirt the issues that they actually want to talk about or to the way that denial plays out in different ways here. I think in America, people will often sort of, there's a broader acknowledgement that yes, institutional racism is a thing. I think since the police killing of George Floyd, people are more willing to acknowledge, white people are more willing to acknowledge that it is still a thing as opposed to a relic of the past. And I remember in Britain, I sort of saw the 
a different phenomenon where it seems like, you know, racism has been exported to other countries and it is not something that plays out in Britain. Uh, but to your question, Emily, I think that by continuing to actually use the words that you want to use, you know, that makes people more comfortable with having the conversations that they need to have. Could I just ask you both, as you, you're, you're both in the U.S., where you see this whole conversation going? Because looking at it from afar, Brandon, you mentioned the, you know, the, the, the Black Lives Matter protests and the Im- influence of uh, George Floyd's murder. And, you know, we're co- going into what's going to be a very tumultuous election season now. I mean, slightly setting aside the question of who wins the election. I mean, do you see America coming out of this having, and I know that it's not unrelated, but do you see America coming out of this having a more open and constructive conversation about race and racism? I feel like I can often be maybe sort of cynical when it comes to this, insofar as I think that the next, you know, few months will be very critical, next few months, maybe like next year will be very critical to see the longevity of these conversations. You know, the protests that we've been seeing Mm -hmm. for the past month, they've been, you know, they're historic. At the same time, I think that we have had a lot of historic moments that remain just that, right? They've remained moments that maybe they push things in a direction that is very important, but maybe didn't accomplish larger goals that protesters, that activists uh, had in mind. And so, I mean, I'm, I'm obviously hopeful that this will change things. And I think a lot of things have already changed. I'm even thinking about various news organizations. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. ...that have taken a hard look at diversity within the workplace, the way that they portray protests, the way that they portray riots, the way that they, even something like capitalizing the bee and Black Americans, I think a lot of places are sort of reckoning with their own role in America's broader racial regime. And those things, I think, will last in terms of whether people will still, will people be tired of having these conversations, you know, in one or two months? Maybe. And that's the sort of the cynic in me talking. I hope not. I think that, you know, talk to any person of color, any Black person. And these are conversations that we have all the time, whether we have them sort of 
aloud or internally or more quietly, you know, with their friends, you know, these are conversations that we have all the time. <laughs> so I would hope that white America in particular is okay having these conversations for more than just a couple of months. All I have to add to that is three things. The first is that, yeah, this idea, there was some talk about like white burnout and it's like, what, <laughs> what are you tired of? Like acknowledging race like and racism? What I mean, it's 2020 and you've just started ordering anti-racism books. In what way are you tired? So that is one for white Americans such as myself. That's just a completely unacceptable. <laughs> if, it's, if it's a thought that like passes through your head, you got to let it go and then get back to focusing on the matter at hand. I think the second thing is that the way that I've seen, you know, just as a, obviously as a non-Black, non-person of color is looking at this is I was an intern at a digital magazine one summer, a few years ago, several years ago now, and was moderating the comments. And it was, there were stories on police brutality and the commenters were just completely denying that this might've had anything to do with the fact that the person killed was Black. And I would go home so just so sad because I was like, this is never going to get better. I mean, they can't even acknowledge what this is about. And I think actually in 2020, the change has been people have said, oh, yes, this is about race. Yes, police do disproportionately kill Black people. So that, I guess, is optimistic. But the question then is, well, what specific change is that comes from this? And I think I agree that it's wonderful that newsrooms are having these conversations. I think it's wonderful that this is spurred conversations in a variety of workforces. But ultimately, this is a conversation about violence against Black Americans, right? And I think it's it's also important that that like this isn't something that you can put in a diversity manager to fix. And I don't think we should lose sight of that. Before we move on to our last section, Brandon, because you write about the intersection of race, but also identity more broadly, you wrote a piece last month about how pride during the pandemic was going to be forced to change, including to change to reckon with some of the issues that we've been talking about. Now that Pride Month has has happened, we were hoping that you could, you know, reflect on on whether those changes did happen, whether you felt like this was a more reflective, maybe political pride is not the right word, but whether what you had hoped to see actually came to pass. Yeah, uh, I think Pride this year was, wow, it was just so fascinating in, in a lot of different ways, right? So yeah, one, there was the pandemic. And then, you know, a couple weeks before Pride Month started, then there were this, the, the global protests, you know, against police violence after George Floyd was killed. And so I remember going into Pride Month feeling very sad and uncertain. You know, usually June is just, it's a month about tactile sort of community and experiences and coming together with people, with other LGBTQ people. And obviously that did not happen this year, but I was actually very pleasantly surprised and honestly happy to see that the issue of police violence, which is obviously something that also plagues the queer community, specifically, you know, certain aspects, certain people within the queer community. I was really happy to see that become a sort of galvanizing issue for Pride uh, this year. And so in New York, for instance, you had a huge march to honor Black trans lives. You had, it, it, and I think a lot of this was because sort of the normal Pride uh, festivities were canceled, right? So the big city-sponsored, city-sanctioned city Pride celebrations were canceled. And so what you had were the more sort of grassroots activist Pride celebrations that were happening. And these were people who were who made it very clear that this is a time to stand in solidarity with Black Americans, with Black people in the 
LGBTQ community who face police violence and discrimination. And so I think on the whole, I was I was so happy with the way that Pride happened this year. Um, you know, I feel like every time I logged onto Twitter or Instagram, I saw somebody sort of posting a, a picture from some sort of Pride, like queer liberation march or something from somewhere. It honestly made me really happy. And I know talking to a lot of uh, other queer friends, their sentiments are, you know, I hope Pride going forward looks like this every year because this was a pride that was not necessarily plagued at least to the same degree by you know the the racial discrimination by the segregation that often happens within lgbtq communities but it was one that was defined more by solidarity and coming together and i personally hope that this is something that we see in prides in the years ahead it's really interesting to hear that from you, Brandon, as we actually have, we have a piece on the New Statesman website at the moment by Maxim Eriastvi, who's a Ukrainian LGBTQ commentator in, in the Czech Republic, who's written about how Pride Month was celebrated in Central and Eastern Europe. And he says that although in many ways it's been an incredibly grim period for people, particularly in countries where with particularly oppressive regimes when it comes to these sorts of rights, how much has, was done both online in terms of online mobilizations, but also about the kind of the sense of joining with causes such as the anti-racism cause as a sort of way to both kind of invigorate and fortify the, the movement as a whole. It's, it's actually quite a, a, an unexpectedly inspiring piece. Uh, so uh, yeah, really good to have your take on that too. I think with that, we will move on to a section that our colleagues at the New Statesman podcast like to call... You Ask Us. How is that? <laughs> Did I do it? <laughs> Emily, do you want to lead off with our first question? Yeah. We have a question from an anonymous listener ooh, that touches on our discussion just now. Does unconscious bias training help reduce racism? I would assume so on some level, right? It's tricky because I think there's often a tendency around the world, you know, not just America, not just the countries we were talking about today, to view racism as an individual act. You know, it's so-and-so called so-and-so a racial slur, ergo, that is an example of racism, um, but it's not something that needs to be addressed more broadly. And so, like, I do think that those individual level sort of shifts, which that kind of training would work toward, but it's also working toward how we grapple with it on an organizational level, it is sort of like looking outward. And so I do think that it, it can help. But I also think that we'd be it'd be a little silly to limit the ways that we fight racism to uh, just sort of like organizational trainings and things like that, right? I mean, racism is something that needs to be tackled on a fundamentally sort of uh, political level on a policy level, in addition to the ways that we might unintentionally prop it up in our everyday lives. All that I would add to that is that I've been at organizations where we've had to undergo trainings like that and where I've sat in the room with people who then left the room and continued to go anywhere from like microaggress their colleagues to just be flat out racist to them. So I think it's, I mean, agree with Brandon and just think that if you are at one, try not to be defensive about it. Try, I mean, this is, I, I when I have been called to them, have tried not to be defensive, have tried to get what I could from it. But like you don't check the box and then congratulations, you have you no longer have a racist organization. I don't uh -huh. I don't really think it works that way. Anyway, we have a second question from Nick Kwaferus, and he is in London. And he asks, if Truskovsky wins the Polish presidential election, do you think this illustrates the success of tactics used by liberal mayors in Visegrad four capitals? And is this the start of turning back the populist tide in Central and Eastern Europe? Jeremy, do you want to 
This, of course, refers to the second round of the Polish presidential election that we've touched on on this podcast a couple of times before. It is a nail-biter between sort of right-wing populist president Andrzej Duda and Rafael Traskowski, who is a sort of liberal conservative, for want of a better phrase. And I would say, in the perspective of most people listening to this podcast, a significant improvement on uh, the incumbent Duda. And it's very close indeed. And, and, and I mean, I'll be watching with great interest. We'll be covering it on the New Season website. And to, to Nick's question, I think, of, yes, it does show the success of, of tactics used by liberal mayors. I mean, across the region, you have a, a kind of societies that are pretty polarized. You know, often it always annoys me when Central Europe and Eastern Europe get written off as this kind of homogenous mass of right wing populist politics, when in fact, the story is a lot more different. And in many of these countries, really vivid debates and clashes between different ideas, different parts of the country, different generations are playing out that belie the sort of simplicity of some of the coverage. And the the, the Visegrad, so Poland, the Czech Republic, Slovakia and Hungary, are good examples where in each of those capital cities, you have mayors who are to some degree or another more progressive or liberal than the than the national government and who have been taking a stand. In fact, they've even been co- cooperating together. Uh, in February, Traskowski, who's the mayor of Warsaw, along with his counterparts in from Prague, Budapest and Bratislava, appealed to the European Union, which has been debating whether or not to rein in money sent to national governments in these countries that are kind of defying liberal norms, to say, give that money to our cities, you know, we will spend it well. So they've been working together, and they've been challenging their national governments. And obviously, if Traskowski becomes Poland's president, then that will be a, a huge success for that strategy. But I think it will also re- reveal how sort of polarized those countries are, you know, whether whether you're looking at Hungary or Poland, or to some extent, the Czech Republic and Slovakia, you have societies where you have a kind of younger, more liberal urban based electorate, and a kind of support base for the populace that tends to be older, tends to be more rural. I mean, I don't want to generalize, but this does seem to be the pattern. And really a big clash of values between those two different sides of society. I mean, you also got in Slovakia, uh, Zuzana Kaputova, who's the president, but very much, and very much on the liberal wing of Slovak politics. She's a a former kind of campaigning anti-corruption lawyer who very much speaks for the kind of the, the, the modern Europeanized Slovak urban youth, particularly in and around Bratislava. So, yeah, I see this as, as a success for the strategy of kind of using mayoralties as ways to take on populist national governments, but also as a kind of illustration of the fact that, I mean, you know, Poland is almost literally 50-50 divided between these two very different prospective presidents. Half of the country will be bitterly disappointed come Monday. So it's very much kind of an, an ongoing clash. But Emily, you're 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 very familiar with the region, particularly Hungary. I mean, what 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 do you think? The only thing that I would caution is that because the thing about presidents in these countries is that they don't actually have a ton of policymaking power. Yeah. And I once pointed this out to somebody in in the Czech Republic after uh, Kaputova won, and was like, "Well, it doesn't really, you know, she's not really going to be able to do all that much." And what this Czech person said to me was. But a bad president can do a lot of harm. So, you know, the fact that Andrzej Kisko was president during the anti-corruption protests in Slovakia and spoke out in support of those protests and criticized then Prime Minister Fica, maybe he couldn't actually do anything legislatively that put uh, anti-corruption positions or policies uh, in place. But that did matter. And the way that we know it matters is that if you look in a place like the Czech Republic, where there's Zeman who, you know, is very pro-China, very pro-Russia, says Black Lives Matter is racist, you know, says that journalists should be shot. That does affect the Czech Republic's 
position in in mm. the world, I would say. It's another thing that the people in the country have to deal with that people in Slovakia don't have to deal with. In Hungary, the fact that the president is not like speaking out against Orban or Fidesz, that matters. So is it largely a figurehead, largely a symbolic position? With all due respect to the presidents in those countries, yes, I think it is. Do I think that electing a new president will defeat law and justice and turn back the tide of illiberalism? Not really. But do I think that it's that it's significant in large part because of its value to harm reduction for the norms in those countries? Absolutely. Yes, I do. And I think your comparison between Zeman in the Czech Republic and Kapitova in neighboring Slovakia is, is a good illustration of how a president, even one without huge constitutional powers, can sort of set the tone of politics in a, in a country in a certain way. Very interesting. Well, we will be watching that closely. For our final segment, as ever, we're going to take a look ahead to the next week. Brandon, what in global affairs will you be watching closely next week? So I have an anniversary, a very close one. <laughs> uh, so July 11th, uh, it marks 25 years since Bill Clinton normalized diplomatic relations between Vietnam and the United States. And the reason that this anniversary jumps out at me is because it comes at a time when Vietnam, or rather the legacy of the Vietnam War, I think is resonating throughout pop culture in a new, more complicated way. I'm specifically thinking about last month, Spike Lee released a new film, The Five Bloods. And, you know, it follows a group of Black Vietnam War veterans as they travel back to their old battleground. They're trying to recover the body of their dead squad leader. So it's this movie that actually deals with racial regimes, both in America and abroad, and the psychological toll that that takes on Black people. And it gives a different way for at least Americans, but I think anyone who's watching the movie, a way to reframe the the conversations that we've often had around the Vietnam War. You know, it comes at a time when so many countries are re-interrogating histories of race and racism and empire. And so I just think that the arrival of this anniversary at this particular time gives us a lot to reflect on in terms of the stories that we tell ourselves and the ways that we're trying to be more honest, to be frank, with with our past. And so I just think it's a this anniversary to me just sort of evokes a time of reflection or sort of presses us to think more deeply about about the national stories that we always tell ourselves. Yeah, worth paying attention to. Thank you. Emily, what will you be looking out for next week? I'll tell you what I'll be watching for. The Polish presidential runoff election. Significant for reasons we've already discussed. I think every week on this we've talked about the Polish presidential election or something to do with Poland. And I did not want to break that trend. So we'll be watching for Poland. And Jeremy, what will you be watching for? I will be watching for the EU summit next Friday, the 17th of July, which is going to be the first in-person summit that the EU leaders have held since the start of the pandemic, and also a really crucial one to the future of the union. I mentioned recently the Germany has taken over the six-month rotating presidency of the EU, and now the question is what they can actually deliver, in particularly with regards to the very large recovery fund that is on the table, but is still in its details contested between different member states. So, you know, it might even be that some sort of big deal is done, but it's not certain, and I'll be watching out for that. So all that remains for us today is to say thank you to our guest, CNN's Brandon Tensley, for joining us. Brandon, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Brandon. If you've enjoyed this episode of World Review, please do leave a review and tell your friends about it. 
or your enemies. And as a reminder, you can subscribe to our World Review newsletter and follow all our international coverage at our international homepage, newstatesman.com international. Our producer has been Nick Hilton. Thank you for listening and until next week.